Half Price Horror. Hello, and welcome to Half Price Horror, where we get our terror at a discount and pass the savings on to you. Half Price Horror is a spoiler-heavy podcast that takes a deep dive into scary movies curated by the selection at the local Half Price bookstore. I'm your host, John, and today we'll be taking a look at Halloween from 1978. Although it's important to remember that this film had something of an unconventional release strategy in order to build word of mouth, and that October 25th, 1978, that premiere date mainly refers to its first screening in Kansas City. It would go on to be released and re-released multiple times over the next two years, so different audiences may have gotten a release at different times. Written by John Carpenter and Deborah Hill, directed by John Carpenter. This was, of course, the movie that made Carpenter's career, and in many ways it's also the movie that destroyed it. Halloween was such an incredible financial success on such a minuscule budget that everyone expected him to replicate it every single time he directed. Instead, he started making brilliantly weird cult film after brilliantly weird cult film, none of which even came close to becoming hits in their initial release, and he eventually grew heartily sick of the pressure to simply make more Halloween movies and retired from directing in 2010. But 2010 was a long way away when producer Erwin Yablons came to him with an idea for a movie set on a single night and featuring a killer who attacked babysitters. He and Hill supposedly suggested the title The Babysitter Murders, but Yablons countered with the suggestion Halloween and the idea of setting the entire film on Halloween night. And it must be said, according to interviews Yablons did for the series The Movie That Made Us, it was always Halloween, and the whole idea of a babysitter murders title is purely apocryphal. This is a film that encourages myth-making, simply because it is so iconic and so influential, and a lot of its best behind-the-scenes stories have been repeated so many times it's hard to track down a primary source. But you can certainly do worse than the book Taking Shape, which covers the whole franchise start to finish, and the episode of the movies that made us on Netflix about the film. It's also important to note that Yablons came up with the concept and the title, because there's a persistent rumor following this film that Carpenter stole the idea from famous director Bob Clark, who did both Black Christmas and A Christmas Story. Now that's a hell of a range. It's true that Clark had an idea for a sequel to Black Christmas that would involve the killer getting caught after the events of that movie, then escaping on Halloween to terrorize a new group of women. And he did mention that idea to Carpenter in conversation when the two worked together in about 1977. But Carpenter was hired after the decision to make a movie set on Halloween with an escaped killer had already been set in place, and he wouldn't have had any opportunity to take the idea from Clark even if he wanted to. It's just one of those weird coincidences that happens sometimes. Carpenter and Hill, who would go on to be a major Hollywood producer in her own right, with films like The Fisher King, Clue, The Dead Zone, and Adventures in Babysitting under her belt before her untimely death in 2005 due to cancer, sat down and wrote a screenplay that drew on Carpenter's memories of a silent, blank-faced child he saw while touring a mental institution and Hill's experiences as a teenage babysitter. They were given a budget of $300,000, most of which was provided by financier Mustafa Akkad, whose name will loom larger and larger as the franchise goes on, and immediately went out and spent 70000 of it on Panavision Panaglide cameras, basically a clone of the new Steadicam uh, cameras that were shaking up the industry, in order to give the film its signature point-of-view perspective. With Carpenter set to compose the score himself, 
Tommy Lee Wallace was recruited to do production design, and we'll be hearing from him again later in the series, and legendary cinematographer Dean Cundy was brought in to operate those panic lines I mentioned earlier. For those of you unfamiliar with what a cinematographer does, by the way, they're the person responsible for actually arranging the lighting, staging, and camera operation that goes into capturing a shot in the movie. They may or may not apparate the camera themselves, in this case Cundy did, but they work in close collaboration with the director and the technical crew, ensuring that everything captured in the lens comes out according to the director's vision. They're also known as directors of photography, or DPs, and they are an overlooked but entire entirely crucial element of making a movie look good. And Dean Cundey, well, he was the DP on, among other films, Where the Red Fern Grows, Rock and Roll High School, Galaxina, Romancing the Stone, Back to the Future, and its sequels, Who Framed Roger Rabbit, Roadhouse, Jurassic Park, Hook, Apollo 13, Casper, The Flintstones, Death Becomes Her, Flubber, Looney Tunes Back in Action, and oh yes, just about everything John Carpenter's ever directed. He even did, back at the beginning of his career, a little made-for-TV movie called Angel's Brigade that was re-released on Mystery Science Theater 3000 as Angel's Revenge. The point is, this guy has been the secret weapon for some of the biggest names in Hollywood, and catching him early in his career was a real stroke of luck for the production. Although, of course, it wasn't just luck. Carpenter knew the man had talent and went out and got him. And of course, the iconic mask is a heavily kit-bashed Captain Kirk mask that was commercially available and originally produced by legendary mask maker Don Post. Ironically, Post was approached to create a custom mask for the film in exchange for a percentage of the profits, but having received too many offers like that from movies that never made a dime, he turned it down. There were several alternatives considered, including a sad clown face inspired by famous clown Emmett Kelly, but everyone agreed that a blank and expressionless face was scarier. With the crew in place, they began selecting a cast. Carpenter knew he wanted a British character actor with gravitas to play Loomis, who was named after the character in Psycho and who would in turn inspire the character name in Scream. Both Peter Cushing and Christopher Lee were approached, but the request never got past their agent, who demanded a higher salary than the cash-strapped production could afford. As a result, they went with veteran character actor Donald Pleasance, who already had dozens of credits by then, but who is probably best known as the first face of Blofeld in You Only Live Twice, a performance that has come to be the go-to representation of evil genius confronting the master spy for subsequent generations, and the basis for Mike Myers' Dr. Evil in the Austin Powers movies. Seriously, this is it. This is the white cat, this is the narrow jacket, this is the dueling scar down the face. Donald Pleasance is every evil genius. Period. Oh, and that's... Mike Myers, not Michael Myers, and yes, apparently he doesn't love having a spree killer namesake. Pleasance took the role mainly because his daughter liked the music in Carpenter's previous film, Assault on Precinct 13, and initially challenged the director on virtually every decision he'd made in the screenplay. When he got sound and sensible answers to his criticisms, though, and even accommodations in those situations where Carpenter thought Pleasance had a good point, he became quite impressed by the young man, and the two of them became personal friends as well as professional collaborators until Pleasance's death in 1995. Teen actor Jamie Lee Curtis was cast as Laurie Strode, although she only had a couple of minor roles at that point, enough that they could get away with giving her an introducing credit in the opening titles, she was nonetheless Hollywood royalty as the daughter of actors Tony Curtis and Janet Lee. 
Carpenter has admitted that the publicity he could get for having the daughter of Psycho's infamous shower scene victim as his lead did play a part in her getting the role, and the amount of nepotism in Hollywood is a discussion that needs to be had, but Curtis definitely didn't coast on her famous name and worked her butt off helping the crew as well as giving the performance that made her career. Nancy Kyes, stage name Nancy Loomis, came to the production from Carpenter's Assault on Precinct 13 and was cast as Annie. She only took a few roles in her career, most of them for Carpenter, before moving on to focus on her work as a sculptor that she still does today. It's worth googling to get a look at her work, by the way. She creates interestingly shaped agglomerations of found objects that look almost like storm clouds. It's very cool. P.J. Souls was cast as Linda based on her performance in Brian De Palma's 1976 movie Carrie, but she's since gone on to do other cult classics like the aforementioned Rock and Roll High School, The Devil's Rejects, and the original film version of Private Benjamin. She's still acting to this day with a role in the TV show Monster Manor 1313 and the upcoming film 13 Girls. I guess as you get a little older, you only start taking projects that have the number 13 in the title. Charles Cyphers was also added to the cast from Assault on Precinct 13, coming on as beleaguered Sheriff Lee Brackett, another tip of the cap on Carpenter's part, this time to the screenwriter who wrote Rio Bravo, one of the inspirations for Assault on Th Precinct 13, and who would go on to pen the initial draft of The Empire Strikes Back. Cyphers is a character actor and perennial guest star, with roles on everything from Buffy the Vampire Slayer, he was the swim team coach in the episode Go Fish, to Sliders, to Sequest 2032, to Lois and Clark, to Wonder Woman, to The Six Million Dollar Man, and that's not even counting all the cop shows, comedies, and other TV series he made appearances on. As always, we love and celebrate our hardworking day players who come on, nail their lines, make the leads look good, and head off to their next part. They're the studio musicians of the television industry, never getting the credit, but always impressing the people who make the hiring decisions. The movie's two children, Lindsay and Tommy, were played respectively by Kyle Richards and Brian Andrews. Richards had previously done guest appearances on Little House on the Prairie and had horror experience from both The Car and Toby Hooper's Texas Chainsaw Massacre follow-up, Eaten Alive, and has gone on to work regularly in television. She was Nurse Dory Kearns for several years in ER. Well, Andrews had previously appeared in Kojak and Beretta when he was cast. He hasn't quite had the success of Richards, but he is still acting and is currently filming the movie Samhain. And rounding out our cast of victims is John Michael Graham as Bob, who came in when Dennis Quaid was unable to appear due to other work commitments. Quaid was romantically involved with PJ Souls at the time. Graham doesn't really have many other film or television roles, but his IMDb profile says that he's worked for several years on stage productions at Walt Disney World in Florida. Certainly, he wouldn't be the first actor who prefers the immediate gratification of live theater over the sometimes elaborately technical aspects of film production. And last but not least, we have The Shape, a.k.a. Michael Myers. Nick Castle is credited with the part. He was a friend of Carpenter's at the time and essentially took the role as an excuse to hang around a film shoot for weeks on end and see how everything worked. It must have helped, because he went on to become a director and screenwriter of numerous cult films, including The Last Starfighter, Skate Town USA, The Boy Who Could Fly, Hook, and Major Pain. It's a bit like finding out that James Gunn was one of the ghost faces in Scream. Several other people also assisted by stepping in as the shape in brief moments when Castle wasn't available or when more specialized expertise was needed. 
I've seen six names mentioned, not counting the animal trainer who did the dog sequence later, but only one of them was credited in the finished film. Tony Moran, who's credited as Michael Myers, age 23, even though Michael would have been 21 when the film was set, performed Michael's very brief unmasking, while James Winburn did the more dangerous stunt work, and Tommy Lee Wallace took over during the closet scene when they needed to demolish the doors reliably because there were no replacements available. And finally, both Hill and Carpenter stood in for a few shots for sequences that were shemped in while Castle was doing other things. Shemping, as defined by industry legend Sam Raimi, is the process of using a stand-in for scenes that only require the actor's hands, shoulders, back, etc. The term comes from the old Three Stooges shorts, where comedian Shemp Howard passed away unexpectedly and actor Joe Palma filmed in for him in a few scenes that connected the shots he'd completed with the shots he wasn't in. It was an obvious enough switch that Raimi noticed even as a child and coined the phrase that is still used to this day. And with all that in mind, it's time to begin. Starting with John Carpenter's legendary theme, a driving staccato 5-4 synthesizer beat inspired by the music of The Exorcist, Suspiria, and of all things a bongo drum exercise he was taught as a child by his father, who was a musician. It's so instantly recognizable, so indelibly associated not just with this franchise, but with the entire concept of horror itself, that it almost feels weird to find it in its actual historical context. It's like watching Rhett Butler actually say, frankly, my dear, I don't give a damn in Gone with the Wind. It's almost been referenced too much to be real. The music plays over credits that sit next to an image of a jack-o'-lantern, candle flickering behind its eyes as we slowly zoom in on it and its ominous, idiot grin. It was one of only three actual pumpkins the production was able to obtain because they were shooting in spring and pumpkins are rather thin on the ground around that time of year. Most of what you see are spray-painted gourds of various types, or plastic jack-o'-lanterns. We then cut to a caption that reads, Haddonfield, Illinois, Halloween night, 1963. Now this will become important for later chronologies, especially for the 2018 Halloween and its sequels, but at this point Michael Myers is a six-year-old boy. So we know he was born in 1957, the same year Jason Voorhees drowned, oddly enough which would make him a very spry 61 in the eventual Legacy sequel, but we'll talk about that when the time comes. For now, we're following an unseen figure as they approach the Myers house in a tracking shot that has become famous as one of the most suspenseful openings in horror history. The figure goes around to the window, where Judith Myers and her boyfriend are making out, played by Sandy Johnson and David Kyle, respectively, before they head up to the bedroom. The figure moves back, looks at the upstairs bedroom window, where the light turns out, then goes around to the back and enters the house. The figure gets a big, sharp kitchen knife out of the drawer, the hands for Michael in these sequences are actually Deborah Hill's, and heads to the staircase, where the boyfriend is already putting his shirt on and leaving. Some people have cited this as a fault, since there's no way this was enough time for the two of them to have sex, but we don't really know that they got that far. It's possible that they got upstairs, took their tops off, and he suddenly remembered that he had a math test the next day or something. The figure, still unseen, heads upstairs and finds a clown mask that the boyfriend discarded. 
He puts it on, which hides one of the few cuts in this unbroken tracking shot. The Panaglide cameras can only capture about five minutes of footage at a time, a technical limitation that made the already torturous sequence even harder to shoot. This was the last scene filmed for the movie, held to the end because they needed to fix up the dilapidated house they found to shoot the present-day sequences they would use later in the film, so this is all actually shot in reverse chronological order, which is just very unusual. And the logistics of hiding all the crew members who were lighting and staging the shot as it progressed became something of a nightmare. The whole time you're seeing this still, silent house, there are people sprinting around, hanging off of banisters, and flinging themselves out of the way to avoid being in the shot. They wound up filming all night, getting take after take after take in an effort to make everything look as effortless as you see here. And it does pay off. Certainly, it's not the first time we see this kind of killer's POV in a movie, but here it's done not just to set up the mystery of the murderer's identity, the typical reason for this kind of obfuscation, but to remove our ability to identify with the killer emotionally in any way, shape, or form. Much has been made by moralistic crusaders about how we're behind Michael's eyes, carrying out the killings along with him, but, well, if you don't mind me getting a little pretentious, I'm going to mention an anecdote about the famous French writer Guy de Maupassant, whose story The Necklace you probably read in some junior high or high school literature class, and who spent a lot of time sitting in the restaurant of the second floor of the Eiffel Tower, looking out on the city as he took his meals. A waiter supposedly commented once that he must love the landmark very much to spend so much of his day there, and he responded, Love it. This is the only place in Paris that I can avoid seeing the damn thing. The exact wording is probably apocryphal, although he did sign on to a protest against the tower, and his feelings about it were well known. But the point is, behind Michael's eyes is the one place where he's completely absent from the narrative. We see the results of his actions, we see the event he's enacting, but we aren't given even the slightest look at his face as he enters Judith's room and stabs her to death. We're given no information about his emotional state. We can't see him smiling, frowning, angry or upset just the knife rising and falling and rising and falling and her body collapsing to the floor. His presence is the outline of a killer, the act but not the intent, and it serves not to help us identify with Michael Myers, but to distance ourselves further from him. He's so oblique we can't even understand him when we're literally inside his head. And of course it gives us the film's first big shock as Michael's parents come home and pull off the mask to show us that the killer we've been following is actually a six-year-old boy. The perspective shifts as the clown mask is removed from inside to outside, but Michael's expression is no less absent as he stares blankly into the middle distance, still holding the knife, and the camera pulls back wider and wider as if to emphasize the isolation of the people in this moment. We then jump ahead to October 30th, 1978, and Smith's Grove, Illinois. Michael's psychiatrist, Dr. Sam Loomis, and his nurse Marion Crane are driving through the pouring rain to pick up Michael and take him to a hearing on his sanity. Crane is new to Michael's case, and more than a little disturbed to hear that Loomis doesn't think of Michael as a person at all. He has to be reminded not to use it to refer to his patient, and is determined to use the hearing to plead his case that Michael is incapable of rehabilitation and needs to be confined for life. But when they get to the gates of the facility and discover a mass breakout in process orchestrated by Michael, she begins to change her tune. 
albeit a little too late as Michael jumps onto the car, smashes through the passenger window, and steals the vehicle despite never having driven before. Now, famously, this was a scene that Pleasance performed early on in his shooting schedule after downing two bottles of red wine to keep his spirits up on what he considered at that point to be an overwritten and incoherent film. And although the crew was amazed by his ability to give a performance through that, it does have to be said that you can tell from his accent that he doesn't yet know whether he's playing an American or a Brit. He veers pretty wildly between a flat Midwestern affect and his usual clipped British tones, and it is a little bit distracting. Also, yes, as long as we're doing the greatest hits of Halloween anecdotes, you can see the wrench taped against Michael's hand to help him break the car window, even though it's supposed to be concealed with flesh tone makeup. The next day on Halloween, Haddonfield prepares for the usual festivities, and Really, it's a testimony to how impressively shot this film is that it takes you several viewings to notice how green the trees and leaves are for Illinois in October. This was all filmed in Pasadena in the springtime, with every spray-painted autumn leaf deliberately scattered by the production team and meticulously gathered up between shots to be reused elsewhere. But there's not really much they can do about the lovely weather. There are even blossoming flowers in some shots, and extremely unseasonable exteriors. Let's face it, though, you're not here for realistic climatology. You're here to be scared out of your wits, and Carpenter's about to start ratcheting up the tension almost immediately. We follow Laurie Strode as she heads to the old Myers place to put the key under the mat for her real estate agent father, and much has been made of this scene in light of the dueling retcons regarding Laurie's parentage and her relationship with Michael. If, as we find out in the next movie, Laurie is Michael's brother and lived in this house as a baby before her older sister's murder and her subsequent adoption by the Strodes, it does seem a little bit tacky and insensitive to ask her to stop by on her way to school to drop off the key. But of course, that's speaking with the hindsight of several movies where Michael escapes again and again and survives one seemingly fatal injury after another as he goes on several brutal and unstoppable killing sprees, and it might have seemed like a very different decision to send her off to a house she doesn't remember that hasn't been inhabited for 15 years. My more cogent question is, why isn't he using a lockbox? They've been around since 1955, they're famously the tool of real estate agents everywhere, and they're a lot safer and more secure than hiding the key under the mat. But maybe that's just the magic of small towns where everybody knows each other. Maybe they don't get vandals and squatters in Haddonfield, just blank-faced spree killers every 10 to 15 years. As Laurie is heading to the Myers place and then to school, wearing an outfit, by the way, that's so sensible and demure that I think my mom had the exact same style of cable-knit sweater she has on, she's approached by Tommy Doyle, the little boy she's set to babysit that night. Tommy is an excitable, inquisitive kid that could come off as a little annoying to some, but Laurie is happy to be patient with him and answer all his questions about their plans for the evening and her reasons for going up to what he's heard is a haunted house. She's also happy to drop an absolutely sick burn when Tommy says that he heard from his friend Lonnie that awful things happened at the Myers house. Laurie responds with, yeah, well, Lonnie Elam probably won't make it out of the sixth grade. One of the things this film does really well is representing the texture of a small town where everybody knows each other. Laurie leaves the key under the mat, perhaps enjoying a little the chance to appear brave in front of the kid she'll be taking care of later, but she doesn't see Michael watching her from behind the dingy, faded curtains covering the front door. And thus begins our game of Where's Michael? Carpenter always takes care to use wide shots, 
much wider than is strictly necessary to convey the action, and then places Michael into the frame in unconventional locations at unconventional distances to prime the audience to constantly watch for him, even in scenes he's not in. This is the first round, so he makes it a little bit easier. As Laurie walks away, Michael gradually steps into frame from the lower right, his breathing inside the mask sounding hoarse and heavy. We don't see the mask yet, just the shoulder of a utilitarian blue jumpsuit. But we already know without being told who's watching here. Whether or not she's his sister, Laurie has crossed Michael's path. And for this terse, sparse, 90-minute movie, that's all it takes to mark her and everyone she knows for death. And it really is worth stressing, by the way, just how lean this movie is. Carpenter's brilliant trick here, one that works so well that it almost hamstrings all the other entries in the series, is to dispense with the element that almost every other slasher film ladles on in Baroque and even ham-fisted fashion. Motive. He spends exactly zero time explaining why Michael killed his sister, why he's chosen to stay at Smith's Grove for 15 years when he could break out, why he chose that night to break out, and why he chose Haddonfield to return to. We don't get a single word of explanation for his choice of victims, his choice of methods, or even his decision to wear a mask. He simply is. An outline of a person, a shape in human form. The closest we get to understanding him is Loomis's explanation that we'll cover later. He's simply evil. Full stop. If he has a motive, it's not one we're capable of understanding. He just wants to kill and never, ever stop. Which is great and perfectly executed here, but we'll discuss in future episodes why it's not really enough to hang a franchise on properly. Even Jason has something he's trying to do with all his murders. Michael's just an absence, and it's an absence that grows harder to cover over as the series continues. That's all for later, though. For now, we cut back to Loomis, who's busy trying to convince people at Smith's Grove that Michael is a dangerous man who's bound to be heading back to Haddonfield to continue his murders. He is, of course, not taken very seriously, mainly because Michael's been institutionalized since the age of six and has not, to our knowledge, spoken a word or taken any violent action since. And yes, I know that subsequent films and novelizations will expand on his time in Smith's Grove, but all we have to go on at this point is Loomis's speeches on the subject, which may be why they're so melodramatic, and he goes to Haddonfield himself to track down his wayward charge. Back at school, Laurie is in English class, discussing the role of fate in a novel, which appears to be entirely invented by Carpenter and Hill, when she sees Michael out the window looking at her from across the street. She looks away, distracted by the teacher, and when she turns back, he's gone. And I have to say, no matter how many times it happens, I never get tired of classroom scenes that conveniently happen to be teaching something that puts a neat little button on the movie's themes. So Laurie... What would you say is important about the role of destiny in seemingly chance events, hmm? Maybe it says that there are no accidents? It's such a hokey trick, but it always works on me. As school lets out, little Tommy is bullied by a group of bigger boys who warn him that the boogeyman is coming before tripping him, causing him to land on his own pumpkin and crushing it. That's real pumpkin number two, and it had to be specially scored to ensure it would properly squish when Brian Andrews fell on it. One of the bullies runs away, only to bump almost directly into the boogeyman himself, Michael Myers, who's also stalking Tommy from their chance encounter earlier. He follows him in the Smith's Grove car, presumably with all the windows rolled down to hide the fact that he shattered one the previous evening, before accelerating away. 
Loomis stops off at a payphone to warn the local police in Haddonfield, and this was originally supposed to be a call to his wife, but this is one of the areas where Donald Pleasance influenced the screenplay with his suggestions. He said he didn't see Loomis as a man who could really get married, he's already so engaged with his work, and Carpenter agreed. He discovers an abandoned truck near the phone booth, and finds Michael's discarded clothes and a matchbook that Nurse Crane was using the night before. But he's so shocked by the discovery, and so in a hurry to find Michael, that he runs off before he spots the naked corpse of the truck driver whose jumpsuit Michael appropriated. Michael's first adult kill, and second total. On her way home, Lori meets up with her friends, Linda and Annie, who are both a little bit more free-spirited and much less responsible. Linda is more interested in learning cheers than studying, and Annie is upset because her boyfriend Paul got grounded and can't sneak over to the house where she's babysitting a little girl named Lindsay, which is conveniently near Tommy Doyle's house, so they can make out. Neither of them immediately notice the car that drives past ominously, but Lori does, and she's more than a little unnerved. Annie makes a loud wisecrack about the slow, sinister way that the driver is scoping them out as he passes. Hey buddy, speed kills! Which seems more sarcastic than anything, given how slow Michael is going. And he slams on the brakes and comes to a dead stop in the middle of the street, which makes Lori even more uncomfortable. But after a long, terrifying pause, he drives on. The three of them outline the plan for the evening. Linda intends to go over to Lindsay's with her boyfriend Bob once the kid goes to sleep so they can have sex in a nice, comfortable bed without any adults getting wise. Paul was going to do the same, but can't anymore because he's grounded. And Lori is going to do the right thing and be an attentive babysitter because she doesn't have a boyfriend despite having a bit of a secret crush on Ben Tramer. All these characters are sketched in caricatures, every bit as deliberately as Michael in their own way, but you can definitely see the possibility for some queer representation in Laurie. She could definitely be seen as asexual, or as someone who's demisexual or lesbian, and who just hasn't fully realized it yet. Linda heads into her house, and Laurie realizes that a few houses ahead of them there's a man standing right next to the hedges, wearing a blue jumpsuit and a white, blank-faced Halloween mask. This is our first full-on look at Michael Myers, and it's impressive just how terrifying he is for all the simplicity of his appearance. There's just something so ominous about him, so devoid of humanity that he fits right into the uncanny valley between person and thing. According to Nick Castle, when he asked what his motivation was for the scenes, Carpenter simply refused to tell him, giving nothing but instructions for where to stand and when to walk. The result is someone who feels utterly motiveless, and that, combined with his already demonstrated capacity for violence, makes every scene feel like a ticking time bomb. Lori turns to tell Annie about him, and of course, when she looks back, he's already gone. Annie decides to go confront him, and jokingly tells her friend that he's there and wants to talk to her, but he's in fact disappeared completely. Annie uses this as an opportunity to needle Lori somewhat nastily about her lack of a sex life. You can definitely see in her a prototype of the quote-unquote mean girl character that would eventually become an essential part of the aught slasher structure before she goes into her house. Looking around anxiously for the killer, Lori bumps almost directly into the sheriff, who delivers one of the iconic lines of the franchise, It's Halloween. I guess everyone's entitled to one good scare, huh? The kids are already beginning to trick-or-treat by the time Lori gets home, which does make sense. A lot of parents want it all over and done with before it gets dark, and Tommy and Lindsay are both probably collecting candy about now in the movie's time frame. 
and she's startled first by another appearance of Michael in the neighbor's backyard before the sheets on the clothesline obscure him and he vanishes, and then by a mysterious phone call that turns out to be Annie calling with her mouth full. She really is kind of an awful friend, it's gotta be said. Annie has the car for the night and offers to pick Lori up, and she leaves, with pumpkin number three, as the wind begins to blow and the afternoon shadows start to lengthen. Again, this is a really excellent use of wide shots to create suspense. Laurie is framed in the center of the screen, drawing your attention to every tiny background noise and movement. Every time you re-watch this, you're looking again to see if there's another place Michael is hiding that you just didn't spot. Many people have commented in the past about how this is a film that supposedly encourages you to sympathize with the stalker, but it really feels more to me like the over-the-shoulder perspective of many modern video games. Lori is your character, and you're trying to spot potential threats before they happen so you can guide her out of danger. Only, of course, in a movie, there's nothing the audience can do. Dr. Loomis, meanwhile, has arrived in Haddonfield, and acting on a hunch, he's checking out Judith's grave. The caretaker, played by Arthur Mallette, is more interested in telling morbid stories about local murders than finding the tombstone, but when they eventually do reach the gravesite, the marker is already gone which is admittedly one of the elements of this movie that doesn't hold up to close scrutiny. How did Michael know where to go? He surely couldn't have been allowed to attend the funeral, not after his part in arranging it, and it doesn't seem likely that anyone would mention to him where Judith was interred, not just the graveyard, but apparently the specific location. It works here because Michael feels like he occupies that liminal space between person and narrative force, always exactly where and who he needs to be to drive the plot to its next scare. But suffice it to say that sooner or later the audience is going to start wanting answers, and later installments of the franchise will get more than a little convoluted in their efforts to give them. Laurie and Annie are heading to their babysitting gig, taking the scenic route so they can smoke a joint in Annie's mom's car together, and honestly, given that Annie is the sheriff's daughter, we could probably dive down an entire rabbit hole regarding the privileges that family members of law enforcement get when it comes to illegal activities that are enforced harshly for other people. There's just no way that Annie's parents wouldn't notice her coming back with a car that smells like pot, and they have to be turning a blind eye to it because it would reflect badly on Sheriff Brackett to have to arrest his own daughter. And given that Haddonfield the town and Halloween the movie are collectively and universally white, it's hard not to feel a little bit of subtle and invisible racial prejudice in the background of this scene. Not that I'm saying Haddonfield is necessarily a sundown town or anything, but this whole sequence would probably have played out very differently if it was a pair of black teenagers in the car with the dope. Also, just to address this because I've seen it described as a plot hole elsewhere, the reason that they are driving around when everything is in walking distance in all the other scenes is because they want to smoke a joint. That's why. But all that is burying the lead, because the truly effective scare here is the way you very gradually become aware that the car behind them is the same tan station wagon Michael's been driving throughout the movie. He doesn't do anything dramatic, but the more you see it, the more ominous it becomes, and the more grateful you are when they finally pull up to the hardware store where the police, including Annie's dad, which is why they stop, are investigating the theft of some Halloween masks, rope, and knives. Even if they do have to hide their joint in a big hurry before Annie's dad sees it, you feel palpable relief here. Now, I have to say my own particular pet theory. 
a lot of the analysis of this movie has to do with the idea that Linda, Annie, and Bob are being punished for their sexual promiscuity, much like Judith in the prologue, while Laurie, who is virtuous and chaste, is rewarded with survival. There's a whole field of study on the psychosexual subtext of slasher movies, and as one of the progenitors, Halloween is often studied from that light. Now, this isn't an interpretation that Carpenter subscribes to. He thinks that Laurie is working out her repressed sexual tension through violence against Michael, but I'd like to suggest that since one of the known side effects of marijuana is paranoia, the reason Laurie survives is because she smoked dope and started getting twitchy, as evidenced by her worry that the sheriff smelled the smoke in their car, and wound up constantly looking over her shoulder all night long as a result. So the message of the movie isn't have sex and die, the message is smoke weed and live. You're welcome. Annie manages to weasel out of Laurie a minor admission regarding her crush on a fellow student, Ben Tramer, before dropping her off at Tommy's, then pulling into Lindsay's driveway a few doors down and across the street. Michael follows Annie and watches from the shadows as she goes inside and the parents leave her and Lindsay all alone. It's now fully dark, and the time bomb continues to tick closer to disaster. Loomis, having finally gotten the attention of local law enforcement, goes with Sheriff Brackett to check out the old Myers place. There they find a dead and partially eaten dog, thankfully off-screen, and Loomis tries to explain to Brackett why he takes this threat so seriously. This is probably the best-known quote not just of the film, not just of the series, but possibly of the whole genre. I met him fifteen years ago. I was told there was nothing left. No reason, no conscience... No understanding in even the most rudimentary sense of life or death, of good or evil, right or wrong. I met this six-year-old child with this blank, pale, emotionless face, and the blackest eyes, the devil's eyes. I spent eight years trying to reach him, and then another seven trying to keep him locked up because I realized that what was living behind that boy's eyes was purely and simply evil. And there it is. That's the core of the film. And that's why it's hard to criticize it as ableist, even though it relies on the horriest of tropes, the escaped mental patient on a killing spree. Because Michael isn't insane. He's evil. You can't reach him because he doesn't want to be reached, and you can't understand him because there's nothing particular to understand. He just enjoys hurting people. That's it. He's a bad person, and people like that exist. And, well, I think it would have been easier in a lot of ways to give him a tragic backstory or a physical monstrosity or something to set him apart from the mass of humanity. I really like that in the end he's just a white dude who likes to cause suffering, because I kind of feel like we need to get better at recognizing those. Also, I find it interesting that his eyes are described in a very similar way to the shark's eyes in Jaws, and I feel like there's something deliberate about that, too. The idea that, much like the shark, he's just a pure predator. Having established all that, though, Loomis makes the fatal error of thinking that the best plan of action is to lay a trap for when Michael returns. He doesn't appear to consider that whatever his former patient is doing, it might be the sort of thing that you very much do not want to wait around for him to finish with. Lori, meanwhile, is babysitting Tommy, who may still be in his Halloween costume unless he has astronaut-themed pajamas. 
when she gets a call from Annie, who tells her that she's been talking to Ben Tramer in an effort to arrange a date for the school dance. Laurie is mortified by the news, which is briefly interrupted both by Lindsay's dog and by Tommy's insistence that he saw the boogeyman standing outside of the house across the street, but their conversation stops when Annie pours melted butter all over herself while making popcorn and has to go wash her clothes. She doesn't realize that she's being watched by Michael from outside, who responds to the presence of Lester the dog by strangling him to death. Again, mercifully off-screen for the most part, although we do see the dog's legs go limp. Apparently he was just being hugged by his trainer and relaxed. It's very cute, even though it looks horrifying on screen. Back at Tommy's house, she and Laurie are watching The Thing from Another World, a favorite of John Carpenter's and mine, and carving jack-o'-lanterns. Tommy's still worried about the boogeyman, but Laurie promises to protect him. Annie, meanwhile, goes out to the laundry room, which is in an outbuilding, something that I can't imagine in any Midwestern house. It's just too cold to make a trip outside to do laundry in parts of the year if you can physically avoid it. And she gets stuck inside, something that may have a little to do with Michael's continuing presence, because, frankly, nothing else makes sense. Who builds a laundry room that they can lock themselves inside? She calls out for Lindsay, who is also watching the thing, and is paying no attention. The phone rings, and Lindsay answers. It's Paul, after all, announcing that he's managed to sneak out and is ready to come over and have sex. He doesn't tell Lindsay that part. He just asks if she can go get Annie. <laughs> she goes out to tell Annie and winds up rescuing her from the laundry room, and the two of them go back inside and get the news. Again, this all seems very mundane, but there's the wonderful way these shots are framed. You can see Michael behind her, observing through the kitchen door Annie inadvertently left open, but by the time she turns around, he's gone. Cundy gives so much depth of field to these sequences that you find yourself scanning the background obsessively over every little detail. It's a film that's made for rewatchability, which may explain, since it came out right at the start of the video era, why it became such a beloved classic that Kevin Williamson wound up referencing it so much in Scream. Annie, being something of a genuinely awful friend, sends Lindsay across the street to be babysat by Lori in exchange for promising to fix everything up with Ben Tramer. Both kids settle in to watch TV, and I could be wrong, but I would swear that the voice of the continuity announcer in these scenes is Tommy Lee Wallace. It sounds a lot like the voice he used for the Silver Shamrock ads in Halloween 3, and I know for sure that was him. But I haven't been able to find any credits anywhere that list it one way or another. And Annie goes back to get her car and pick up Paul. But Michael is hiding in the back seat, and not to complain unduly, but the next time you go out to your car, I want you to pay close attention to the angle you have to stand at to reach the front door handle, and tell me what kind of a view you have of the back seat, because this is one of those hiding places that only works in movies. Sorry, that's just a pet peeve of mine. And he pops up and strangles her to death. The time bomb has just gone off. That was kill number three of Michael's life and this movie. The kids are now watching Forbidden Planet, and Tommy decides to hide while Lindsay is distracted by the movie so he can jump out and scare her. But when he ducks behind the curtains, he sees out the window as Michael carries Annie's body into Lindsay's house. He's understandably terrified, but Laurie thinks he's just easily frightened by the usual Halloween pranks. Oh, and speaking of, Loomis spots a group of kids daring Lonnie Elam to go up and knock on the front door of the Myers place, and he spooks them from the bushes before giving himself a little satisfied smirk. But his smile vanishes when Brackett returns. 
The sheriff is beginning to think that Loomis is making much ado about nothing, and he's getting frustrated by a night wasted lurking around the old Myers place. And over at Lindsay's house, Bob and Linda finally arrive. They go inside, already half-drunk, and talking about ripping Lindsay's clothes off, which is a hugely tasteless and gross joke on Bob's part, and find the lights out and apparently nobody home. And incidentally, there has been much criticism of Linda's overuse of the word totally in her dialogue, especially in this scene, but I think we all know those people who have a verbal tick they can't get rid of. They start making out on the couch, not realizing that Michael is observing them from the doorway, before calling Lori to find out where Annie's gotten to. Lori mentions that she's got Lindsay and that Annie's presumably off somewhere with Paul, and the two of them decide that's as good as permission to go have sex in a stranger's bedroom. A stranger who apparently carves a jack-o'-lantern and puts it on their bedside table, which is certainly an impressive display of Halloween spirit, if nothing else. I'm pretty sure this is one of the plastic jack-o'-lanterns. After they finish, and maybe I was selling Judith's boyfriend a little short, because it sure seems like Bob and Linda make love in the same extremely rapid time frame as the couple from the beginning of the movie, Bob goes down to the kitchen for a couple of beers. He hears a sound, and has just enough time to open the pantry door before Michael steps out in a clear homage to the thing from another world and its legendary jump scare, and lifts Bob clean off his feet before stabbing him in the gut with a kitchen knife hard enough to literally pin him to the wall. Yes, this is not possible given the length of the blade and the thickness of Bob's body. Suspend your disbelief. Michael then tilts his head first one way, and then the other, quietly admiring his handiwork, on his fourth kill, before going after Linda. He covers himself with a sheet and Bob's glasses, and Linda assumes at first that it's Bob playing a prank. She sits up in bed, exposing her chest, and says, See anything you like? Apparently at one screening souls attended, someone in the audience yelled out, Hell yes I do! Something that greatly amused her and irritated her boyfriend Dennis Quaid. Annoyed with Bob's lack of response, she decides to call Lori to see if Annie's back, and Michael strangles her with the phone cord just as Lori picks up. Realizing at this point that something must be wrong, Lori decides to go over and see what the problem is. She makes sure the kids are asleep first, just as Loomis finally spots Michael's car parked down the street and realizes the man he's looking for has to be nearby. And then, in another long, slow, almost luxurious tracking shot that gives the audience all the time in the world to dread what's coming, she goes across the street to Lindsay's house. The aspect ratio, perfectly chosen for exactly these situations, makes her feel small and insignificant and surrounded by darkness as she goes around back and enters through the open kitchen door. And we're on full alert as she searches the house room by room and finally finds her friends upstairs. They're all dead, with Annie posed on the bed in a grotesque tableau in front of Judith Meyer's headstone, Linda stuffed in a cupboard, and Bob hanging upside down in the closet. The way his body comes swinging out is the single clearest sign of the influence this movie had on the original Friday the 13th. It's only five kills, really not much in terms of a body count, and very few of them have any gore to speak of, but it is still an impressive staging of those murders. Terrified, Lori backs out of the room, staring anxiously at the staircase as if expecting the killer to come up at any second. But in one of those perfect shots that will be dissected for decades to come, we see Michael's chalk-white face slowly emerge from the shadows behind her. 
He doesn't move. They actually put a small spotlight on Nick Castle controlled by a dimmer and very slowly raise the light levels as if the audience's eyes were getting used to the dark. It's gorgeous. It's so gorgeous, in fact, that I can forgive the staging of the very next shot where Michael raises his knife to strike and, um, cuts her sleeve. She doesn't dodge. She doesn't turn at the last second. She doesn't even move. He just misses her. Which, it must be said, feels a little out of character for Michael here, and I think this could have been staged a bit more dynamically. But when she feels the knife cut her arm, Laurie does turn. She falls backwards over the railing onto the staircase below, but remarkably suffers no serious injuries and is able to get to her feet and limp away. She goes first to the front door, then to the back, and finds that both of them have been jammed shut from the outside. Which, how? Because Laurie is able to come in the kitchen door, so he must have jammed it shut after she went through, and he must have done it from the outside because it's got a rake propped against it. Did he do that very quickly, then climb in through a window and race up the stairs while she was in the bedroom looking at Annie's body so that he could then pop up from behind her while she was at the top of the staircase? It's one of those things that doesn't really hold up to close examination, but we don't care because the staging is so tense and rapid fire that we're not given time to think about it. It's only afterwards when we start to notice how Michael kind of teleports around the room and neighborhood. Laurie breaks the window and dislodges the rake just as Michael approaches, running outside and going from house to house, begging for help. But the neighbors only turn out their lights in response, which is a clear reference to the then-infamous 1964 murder of Kitty Genovese. At the time, the event appeared in a number of psychology textbooks as an example of the so-called bystander effect, the tendency for people witnessing violent crimes to hunker down and ignore them rather than assist or call the cops, and Carpenter would almost certainly have been familiar with it. According to the original account published in the New York Times, 38 people witnessed Kitty Genovese being murdered in the courtyard of her apartment complex, and not a single one called the police or attempted to help her in any way despite her screams. It's been frequently cited as the classic example of, quote, man's inhumanity to man, unquote, and it wasn't until 2016 that someone went back to the original police reports and discovered that there were 38 witness interviews rather than 38 witnesses, and a much smaller number of people saw what was happening. None of them saw the entire thing, and the police were called, and the killer was deterred in his initial assault by shouts from the neighbors. It was only when Kitty went around to the side of the building, out of sight of witnesses, that she was attacked a second time and murdered. But obviously Carpenter had no way of knowing that when he filmed this scene. Laurie heads back to the Doyle place, planning to use the phone, but it's locked and she can't find her keys. She manages to wake Tommy and Lindsay as Michael approaches, just barely getting inside. But of course, the average suburban house is anything but a fortress. Michael cuts the phone lines, or has cut the phone lines, or... I mean, look, don't think too hard about it. At this point, we're just in it for the scares. And he gets inside, stabbing at Lorian, narrowly missing. She stabs him back in the throat with a knitting needle, and takes the knife, but when she sees that she's apparently delivered a fatal wound already, she drops it in shock and disgust. Loomis and Brackett begin their house-to-house -house search for the killer. They're closing in, but they don't know that they're running out of time, because when Lori goes upstairs to check on the kids, a recovered Michael follows her. 
She draws him away from Tommy and Lindsay, then hides in a closet. But of course it's an obvious and indefensible hiding spot, and Michael easily breaks through the flimsy wood. She grabs a coat hanger and uses the sharp end to stab him in the eye while he flails at her with the knife, forcing him to drop it. Then, picking it up from where it fell, Laurie stabs him in the gut and he finally falls. She edges past him, throwing down the knife again. Apparently to this day, the single most common comment Jamie Lee Curtis gets from strangers is, Why did you let go of the knife? And she limps over to check on the kids. She sends them to the Mackenzie house down the block, much as Casey Becker's dad does in Scream 18 years later. But as she slumps against the doorframe, we get another one of those iconic depth-of-field shots as Michael sits up behind her. He walks towards her, catching up to her in the hallway and attempting to strangle her, and she pulls off the mask to reveal... a face. An ordinary human face. Michael isn't anyone particular. He's not some hideous monster. He's just a man who likes to kill. But he does also like to wear a mask, and Laurie's act gives her just a moment's reprieve as he puts it back on, long enough for Loomis, who heard the screaming children running from the house, time enough to come up the stairs and put six bullets into Michael's chest. The killer stumbles backwards and falls out the window, landing hard on the ground below. It was the boogeyman, says a sobbing Laurie. As a matter of fact, it was, Loomis replies. And then, this ending. This perfect ending. Loomis goes to the window, looks down, and Michael's not there. They shot this two ways, one where he was surprised to find Michael gone, and the other where he was simply resigned. And Carpenter had to agree with Pleasance that the resigned ending worked much better. He can't even be surprised by it. What else would happen? How do you kill evil? The film ends with shot after shot after shot of all the places Michael might be, all the locations we've seen in the film, each one overlaid with Michael's heavy breathing. But try as we might, as trained as we are by the last 90 minutes to scrutinize every frame of this movie from edge to edge for some sign of the killer, we don't see him. He could be anywhere. And it's that dread, that sense of ominous ambiguity, that prompted critic Gene Siskel to check his shower when he got home from watching Halloween, and made screenwriter C. Robert Cargill's mom literally barricade her front door when she returned from her first screening. Because a killer who could be anywhere could be right next to you. And will I hang on to this movie? Well, yeah, it's Halloween! This is the kind of movie they invented the word classic to describe. A perfectly paced and perfectly shot thriller that doesn't waste a single frame of its 90-minute runtime. As we'll see in the weeks to come, half the problem that the subsequent films have is that everyone wanted more of exactly this, not a single deviation from this formula for perfection. And part of John Carpenter's wisdom was knowing just when to stop. And if you want to talk about perfect pacing, widescreen framing, or about anything else that came up on this podcast, you can find me on Twitter at at HalfHorror, and on Tumblr and Letterboxd as HalfPriceHorror. My watch list on Letterboxd contains everything I plan to tackle in future episodes. If there's something you'd like to hear about, let me know. You can also support the show at patreon.com slash halfpricehorror, and you can rate and review me on Apple Podcasts and anywhere else this podcast is found. 
And next time on Half Price Horror, well, it is Halloween weekend, and that means it's time to spend a little while with Elvira's movie macabre and her own particular brand of cheesy humor. But wouldn't you know it, there's a scheduling conflict. It's also the devil's wedding night, and I think we've been invited. So maybe we'll just have to kill two birds with one stone and watch 1983's episode of Elvira's movie macabre, The Devil's Wedding Night. See you then.